Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The mornings are getting milder, the sun is setting later every day. England have basballed their way to another test win. Heather Knight's team are in another World Cup semi-final and Australia are effectively bowled out in a session for the second time in a week. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. It's been a good week to be a follower of English cricket. Uh, I am aware that a substantial percentage of the people listening to this live in Australia, so we will do our utmost to offer sober analysis on their Delhi defeat as well. I'm Yazrana, and with me this morning is Phil Walker and Ben Gardner. Mark Butcher will be joining us later in the show. Let's start with that England win at Mount Monganui. Uh, There's quite a lot less rain than I predicted on last week's show. Uh, It was England's first win in New Zealand in 15 years. It's their first ever win in an overseas day-night test. Ben England declared after 58 overs in the first innings, the second earliest first innings declaration ever. Um, they negotiated their way around conditions superbly again. Yeah, that's the thing. Because England keep obviously playing the way they play. And yet there keeps being justification for it. The, you know, the reasoning here, if you want to find it, is that um, if, you, if you get as many runs as you can before it becomes impossible to bat and then get the other side in and it, and it worked to perfection. Um, yeah, and it's this. This was almost the most. I mean, along with that first test of, of the Pakistan series, this was very, very quintessential New England in terms of you know scoring seven hundred runs and no one facing a hundred balls in an innings. That's <laughs> that can't have happened very many times. And you know contributions from basically everyone. I guess we'll talk about the 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 few exceptions, maybe the sole exception, I suppose. Um, uh, but yeah, they were they were very, very good once again. I guess is it worth saying that New Zealand are not the New Zealand that we would remember from, you know, a couple of years ago, even from last summer, that, you know, this was a bowling attack with two debutants, Sean of uh, Carl Jameson through injury, a bad injury, it looks like, as he's going to be out for at least four months, I think, um, and Trent Bolt, who's not selected for reasons that I guess we'll come to. I mean, you can, if you want to, you can find caveats with all of England's wins so far, I guess, but you can also probably find caveats with uh, 
uh, with every sporting achievement in history, I guess. Mm. Um, Your voice is about an octave lower than normal. What's, what's happened? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I have I have followed the cricket reasonably closely, especially because it was mostly overnight, and I was at a, a stag do this weekend, uh, which which actually did give 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 the chance to sort of be a you know you're, you're having a good time, and you're also following Harry Brook makes his his dual assaults in England's fastest Test hundred, and he will get there. Uh, but yes, that's that's why I'm slightly croakier than usual. You look like shit. <laughs> I think, but completely fair point on the New Zealand attack. I think we've said before that when New Zealand were doing really well, whenever there was an injury, the person who'd come into the team it was barely there was a barely noticeable decline. Whereas now, uh, Titner and Kugler, who made their debut, they average mid to late 30s with the ball in first-class cricket. And both have pace, and we'll get to Kugler's selection in more detail later on. Both have pace, but both are quite erratic. You, you talked about the negotiating the conditions the, the I thought the game was summed up with how the two teams went about facing the new ball under light so England were 79 for two off about 16 17 overs when they started their second innings under lights New Zealand across their two innings in the night session were about 100 for eight from 40-ish overs it's completely different uh, and that's kind of where the test was won and lost in the yeah end. and it wasn't so much the, the conditions because if you actually looked at the percentage of swing the degree of swing and movement from daytime to nighttime there wasn't an appreciable difference there is a legitimate point that it might not be quite as easy to pick it up under lights for sure uh, but England showed in that on at the end of day two that if you can apply yourself against some erratic bowling then you can you can score runs under lights and we have seen that uh, in previous instances uh, New Zealand didn't have anywhere to go in either of their innings under lights because England didn't let them go anywhere. Uh, and to see Kane Williams, Kane Williamson completely becalmed uh, and cleaned up twice under lights for, for next to nothing was indicative really of how good England were with the ball and how relentless they were uh, and how garbled New Zealand were really. Um, and the point about uh, how unthreatening and toothless they are this is not the side that we've recognised before and it's indicative of a, of a culture that consistently punches upwards and consistently overachieves, but which through no fault of their own is uh, not nearly as, as reliant on depth and not, not, not nearly as, as uh, broad and wide a cricketing culture as, as you have elsewhere and that's no, no reflection on them. But you have seen that when you lose one or two champions, there aren't too many coming out up behind. Yeah, and I think it's, it's weird there's not really a sense of crisis around New Zealand cricket that it feels like they could be if this was another team who were, you know, at the highs they were and are now in this sort of slump because they kind of just accept that, you know, that's their their place in the in the scheme of things and that's the way that things will go. You will have very good players and a very good team at some point and then there will be a period of transition and you wait for the next set of good players and then you enjoy that while it lasts. And it must be I, I, I would add though that I think some good players and some storied players have, have not turned up in that game. Um, Williamson's the obvious example, but Nichols, although he's coming, you know, he's out of form, but he has a decent te test record. Obviously, Mitchell has a good test record against England in particular. They all bummed out. Um, uh, I would imagine that they'll put up a better show in the second test match. Uh, I'm not saying they can stop the juggernaut, but uh, I'd be surprised if they played as, as flimsily and blandly as that again. It's also, sorry, just one more thing that's interesting about uh, the England approach in this game and with that declaration uh, is that there is definitely an element with this England team of them actually doing quite a lot of things that England have tried and been criticised before and yet them just working this time. 
you know, like in, say, like Duckett in Pakistan, just sweeping every single ball and we'll get to Australia. <laughs> uh, but we've seen players try that before and n- not succeed and be criticised for it. And then we have seen England sort of overthink and in day-night tests and be like, we have to make the most of the pink ball under the lights and that's the only way we're going to win. And in this test, they also did that. They backed themselves to, to make inroads there, but it just, it worked. And I guess that comes with a certain clarity of thought and belief that it's also, it's almost not so much that uh, what you're trying to do, but if you really believe in what you're doing, then that is maybe what can bring the success. Yeah, there's not much in the declaration and I don't think uh, it's it's consistent with it. basically everything else they've done. It's a combination of four-fifths logic, pragmatism, good sense, and one-fifth grandstanding. And I think that probably applies to basically everything that they've done under this this new new theory. Yeah, and Anderson might never face a ball in test three again unless England <laughs> need four to win a test match. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's quite, I think I think Dave Titner said on, on Twitter, um, basically, would you rather Anderson bat under lights or bowl under lights? And it's simple as that. It, it, it interesting. Like, sometimes I do feel like we almost give Stokes and McCollum too much credit. Like, they wanted to bowl first, I think. Stokes said at the toss that he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do and I think he said he would have bowled first. And then on day three, when England went really quickly in the second innings and it was clear they wanted to bowl under lights, it kind of felt like they might be going too quickly. Then Folks comes out at number seven instead of Stokes and you think, oh, they're trying to just slow things down for a little bit and it turns out that Stokes was in the loo. And that, and that, Is that right? Have, yeah, there was nothing else to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I have a few questions about, actually. Cause oh, on, on that, <laughs> ball of the century, Gatting... Yeah, Warren Gatting. Um, Robin Smith was meant to to have gone out to bat, but he was on the loo. So it's Gatting, yeah. There you go. Because it kind of made me think that obviously it's, it has happened in the past, but it doesn't happen that often, and it's just seemed like a very this England team for it to not be an issue. Which makes me think: Are there times in the past where someone has like really, really needed to go and has just come out anyway? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, enough um, of that. Enough of that. It's Monday morning. Um, Anderson and Broad have now taken over a thousand test wickets together as a partnership. They overtook Warner McGrath, who previously held the world record there. Uh, both took fourfers in the second innings. Anderson took seven in the match. Broad took four of the first five second innings wickets, all bowled. It was one of those spells. His knees were pumping and all that. Um, I think Broad needed that after all the Nighthawk chat the previous evening that fell a bit flat when he got out uh, fending one away from Wagner early on. But um, it, do- it doesn't go flat, does it? Because it's all whipped up with this sort of slavering sycophancy everywhere you go. The night, the night hawk. It's extending his career by by pure genius self mythologizing, which Broad is obviously a genius at. Um, but you can put your put your house on him bowling averagely at best in the first innings, twatting around with the bat a little bit, and then coming and cleaning them up. You can put your house on that happening. Because, you know, there would have been people writing, no doubt, halfway through that game, just as they were before the game, that Robinson is a more effective bowler in in the here and now. And if they're looking for real pace alongside Anderson and Robinson, then Broad has to make way. Everyone's thinking it. Everyone's writing it. So what does Broad do? He comes out and he cleans them up. Four for zip. There you go. That's that's the cricketer right there. And I know Yaz wants to say something like this as well, but all of that is still true, I think. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it was Will McPherson at The Telegraph who wrote a piece that was headline broad is no longer in England's best test team. And then he makes, he takes four wickets. Then was like, ha ha, look at this. idiot! he doesn't know what he's talking about, but it, it is, it's not just correct. It's, it's so obviously correct at this point. Like we see how brilliant Robinson is and we know how brilliant Anderson is. Uh, and then, and then you, if you, if you then want an extra pace bowler, which England will a lot of the time, which they have, you know, shown that they want that, then 
broad you can't pick broad over one of those two players if you're playing you know a world championship final or an ashes decider tomorrow um and that doesn't mean that broad is a bad bowler we know that he is a very good bowler it just means that england have a lot of options exactly. and that Stuart exactly. broad is now and, not and, quite and, in their best three but, but that's it though isn't it and again, you know, we say it all the time, but if you're playing five Ashes Test matches in six and a half weeks, then no one's going to play all five games. And if they do, then the selectors have ballsed up and they don't tend to do that. So Broad is, is, a, is a floater, he's a match winner, and he always has been and he always will be because he does have that unique or semi-unique thing that certain sports people have where you can bend a moment to your will. And he's going to infuriate you sometimes and he's, he's going to go, he's going to be innocuous it for half a game or even three quarters of a game, but he's also going to affect it from time to time. And when he does, he has this innate ability to identify the right moment to do it. Um, and he did that last year. You know, you have to be fair. He did that last year as well. And he's done it this week. And there, there, there is a man management question there. You know, we, we know Broad has responded uh, in certain frustrated ways to being dropped in the past or being left out or whatever. Um, and uh, a lot of this England team has this. What, what they've done has worked because of the the good vibe and the mentality and the atmosphere they've cultivated. And when you come to make tough decisions, there is a danger of impacting that. But Stokes and McCullum have handled everything, all those kind of personal things, so sensitively, really, and uh, cannily so far that I would expect they will do the same. And yeah, and Broad will like, you know, if he, even if it's not England's best three, he's England's best what five or six. So as Phil says, he'll be kicking around and contributing for kind of as long as he wants to, I think. Mm. Yeah, I guess this test match, I think, showed exactly why. I mean, I was going to mention that article that Will wrote in the Telegraph. I think this test showed exactly why he's not in England's best team. He was brilliant with the new ball. But England have loads of guys who are brilliant with the new ball. He was really ineffective as soon as it wasn't dark, basically, and the ball wasn't brand new. And I thought that I wanted to pick out two moments from Ollie Robinson that I thought were pivotal for England. So one, um, so Wagner, when he was the night watchman, day two, he scores quite a few quick runs, predominantly off Broad. Broad gets him. Then Robinson gets Mitchell early on with, with a really good ball yeah. when the ball wasn't really doing much for anyone yeah. else. That's a massive moment. New Zealand at 83 for five. McGrath-like well, delivery again. Yeah, it really was. And then um, later in the day, Blundell was putting on a really dangerous stand with Kugeline. England looked pretty flat at this point. And again, brilliant ball from Robinson to get Kugeline just before the interval. Without, two, without those two moments, it's, it's quite a different looking test. And Robinson produces those kind of moments quite regularly for England in whatever conditions. I mean, looking at the achievements of this England team under Stokes and McCollum, England, we said this before, England win a lot of test matches at home. They rarely lose at home. Um, England winning six out of seven in 2022 uh, and England winning, what, one test match at home in, in 2021. One test win in 2021 is a much bigger aberration than England winning six out of seven. The thing that is really impressive about the Stokes McCollum era for me is those four consecutive wins overseas. I mean, England's record on flat wickets overseas is appalling, right? Like, haven't won a test match in Australia since 2011. Haven't won a test match in New Zealand before this since 2008. Haven't won a test series in West Indies for years, nearly 20 years. England never won a test match in the UAE. On those wickets, England recently been really bad at winning and Robinson's such a big part of that. He just, he, he's almost like, um, he's almost like a mystery spinner who controls it. And like, he's played 15 test matches now, or maybe slightly more, but he's played, he averages less than 20 and he's played in Australia, Pakistan and New Zealand. He's comfortable taking the new ball. He's comfortable being first change. I think he allows this England team to do do a lot better 
quite quickly without actually having to think about how they need to do much better. Like I think a lot of the credit that Stokes gets quite rightly for them being a uh, being better at taking 20 wickets is completely fair. But a big part of it is he's got Holly Robinson. Um, and even when the Ashes uh, were badly last winter, Robinson, with all the fitness criticism, was still averaging 25. Um, so I think he's a absolutely huge part of, of the team's recent success. Here, here. Because England do this every test, it isn't isn't new anymore that they score so quickly. But it was another really good test for Duckett, really good test for Brooke. Uh, Pope played well, folks played well. There was there's quite an interesting point made um, by Frankie Mackay on the um, commentary coverage of the test. She she made the point that the guys who seem to be doing better for England are, are those who score quickly, naturally, in a relatively low risk way, and and Brooke in particular does that. I thought the way he, he played Wagner was was extraordinary. Wagner's we all know that he loves bowling short. Um, that's almost his stock ball when it's flat. And the way England played him, particularly Brooke, where he just backs away and just swats him straight, was, was absolutely... But also Pope as well. I mean, he's stuck yeah. him in the stands three times in the first hour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this is Ollie Pope, who's meant to be a kind of rounded English archetype. Um but it just shows, just shows the the raw talent that that, that is now flowing through the team. Um, Joe, of course, Joe Root is probably the 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 one who, by his own admission, has perhaps found himself between various different theories. Um, Out reverse scooping in the first innings and reverse yeah, scooping in the second. Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, I think he'll be okay. I don't think we need to worry too much. But it was interesting that he did say after the game, as you as you mentioned before the show, that. Uh, He's perhaps got swept up in it a little bit and and mislaid uh, the theory that's got him to where he is a little bit, or it's got maybe slightly confused. He's just maybe got a little bit ahead of it, ahead of it all, you know, whipped up in it all. He doesn't need to because Joe scores quickly anyway, uh, and he does it immaculately and exquisitely. Uh, there's absolutely no no story to play with with Joe Root at all, um, but. It was interesting that he did acknowledge that and that he said that first innings dismissal was to kick up the arse that he might have needed. Yeah, I think he's maybe been playing it a bit like T20 cricket when you want him to play it like it's ODI cricket, possibly. Yeah, well, he, he said to me last summer, uh, I, I'm interested in in reframing what, what it is to be a test match batter. And that's great. And it's a good line. And it's good that a cricketer, having achieved everything that they that they can do and he has is still looking to try and create something fresh and new but also you have got there doing what you've done so sure push the boundaries to an extent but uh still be faithful to your own genius you know and don't 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 garble that genius too much yeah i i i, I mean it sounds like he will get there on his own uh and i i'm hope he does because It'd be soul crushing to have for someone else to have to have that conversation with him, you know. Like, like you've 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 carried England for what like a decade when no one else has been able to to buy a run. Basically, uh, you've been the only good batter. You've done it actually in quite a proactive style, and then someone comes in who makes it fun, who says you can all do what you like. But Joe, actually, if you could still just be sensible, like you know, that that would just be so so cruel, basically. Because like, like you've got the, the you know the, the the model student, the best kid in the class, and everyone else gets to go in the squeeze shop. Well, on, and he's he's there with his face pressed against the glass, and he's got to eat his broccoli kind of thing. On uh, on model students, you made the point earlier about Ben Folks and how he just kind of quietly going about his own thing and still being very effective while doing so. Yeah, and, and, and another excellent test for him too. Two in a row after 
Uh, he, he's, he's very good on that Pakistan tour as well. And he is, I mean, I guess we're going to have to come to the conversation about Johnny Bairstow at some point. And we had loads and loads and loads of questions about uh, Zach Crawley and Bairstow and where Bairstow fits back in and all of that. And it, it maybe it's still too early because the situation just, you almost need to see what the situation is when Bairstow is back fit and available and uh, you almost can't answer it until then because people will score runs and struggle oh, don't be between such a those you know you want to talk about it anyway. uh, well I mean if say, if, <laughs> <didn't take> <laughs> if, if Bairstow are available for the next test I guess we, we can have that theoretical discussion maybe that, that we, we did have to do. more than 50% of the questions were yeah. on this I mean one from uh, George he said laying in bed reviewing the latest test in my head and given Zach Crawley's continued struggles in the previous form of Johnny Bairstow would the braver decision be to drop Crawley for Bairstow when he returns to fitness England have got 99% of their decisions right during the Basball era so there's surely nothing to lose right um, I think we know where Phil and Ben stand on Crawley but this I, is a very specific question that isn't on do you think Crawley's a good batter well that's the thing so I actually have a question for you Phil about this which is so obviously we've discussed in the past I would leave out Crawley you would leave out folks and that's fine but my question is say Bester is back for the first test of the summer if Crawley continues to struggle between now and then is is your is your thinking that you back Crawley kind of no matter what or is it that you think he is good enough that he will make good of it in time essentially is that like a long-winded way of saying would I pick would I pick Bester instead of Crawley no because I I, th- I think it's more like how how sort of dedicated to Crawley are you in a way is, is it that you think he is worth investing say another five ten test matches in or you think that he is on the verge of cracking it and that will happen by the time okay. well the, the first thing I'd say um being evasive is uh Duckett's only been a test opener for five minutes as well and he's done really well and he's played nicely in the first innings here for 80 odd uh but he's only played what four games as an opening bat um and since he's come back in sorry yeah, yeah yeah since he's come back in uh and he did well in Pakistan as did Crawley overall you know um, quite a big difference though yeah yeah I, up to a point I mean he played one one more good innings than Crawley no he didn't it was like three three three, three he, made, he made 60 80 and 80 in the second yeah. two tests and, and Crawley, Crawley made 140 and a, and a nothing and a nothing yeah okay so all right so he's played better than him in a very very short space of time um over the last five test matches, Crawley averages Bairstow's career average, 38. Uh, but, Craw- but Duckett, fair play, he's doing well. But there, there is no guarantee that Duckett is now England's opening bat. So I think the question of where Bairstow comes into the side can apply to Crawley's place as well as to Duckett's place, personally. Um, on, the, on the Crawley question versus Bairstow as an opening bat, the idea of bringing Johnny Bairstow back to open the batting for England in the Ashes is totally conceivable now and in the current setup totally legitimate and I see that of course and um, there's no guarantees it'll work of course Bairstow's never faced a red ball as an opening bat in his life um, and was in and out of the side for a number of years basically because he was defensively infallible against the moving ball uh, and the numbers were quite stark a year and a half ago to straight balls it just wasn't happening for him um and to those who say that well he's done it in white ball cricket well that's very true and self-evident but the white ball swings for two overs and after that it sits up and begs so i don't think it's quite a fair comparison so best average is 37 from i think 89 games something like that 
He's also, of course, a baseball phenomenon and probably the purest distillation of that theory going and plays with a freedom from number five that he's probably always wanted to have, but he's only really now comfortable playing the way that, that he is. Um, and the nature of that setup and his position in it, uh, in the slipstream of Joe Root, allows him, liberates him to play in that, in that kind of way. Opening up, opening up against Cummins and Hazelwood with the Dukes ball in England is probably the toughest assignment, probably outside of a ragging Turner in Delhi. As it gets, uh, Johnny Besto is a natural middle-order player and has only ever done his work as a middle-order player. To come up against those two in England with the Dukes uh, is a borderline impossible assignment for anybody, let alone a player who's never done it before. So then you come to Crawley, who likely will struggle, <laughs> in that series Duckett will likely struggle too um, and Bairstow himself if he is given the gig would be up against it also um, I can see it happening and I would respect it happening totally either of the openers can make way for sure but given the randomness of it and the obvious gamble of it I would probably rather on balance go with a promising 25 year old potential match winner who might influence a couple of games from up top than go with an inconsistent but thrillingly talented 33 year old who's had a broken leg and you don't know what kind of state he'll be in in, in a couple of in three or four months time um so that's probably where i'm at with it at the moment um but as i say it's totally conceivable and totally legitimate mm. I, I, sorry i think there'll be some people listening to it being like what but duckett duckett scored as many 50 plus scores in a handful of innings as, as duckett has uh, as Crawley has over but a he's, he's never time. played a test match in england and it's a very different experience to playing it in on yeah. a flat one in pakistan and on a dead one against a couple of medium paces and I was, in new zealand i was just going to say on, on duckett that the questions around him despite the runs that he scored are quite conventional questions you have with a guy who comes into a test team yeah now um, you don't know what he's going to be like against I mean Ben you made the point about the attacks that England have faced this winter they have been pretty poor attacks um, and I think the questions against Duckett's game that still remain what you normally question of a, an opener coming into a team is like actually what they're going to be like against the moving ball against high pace uh, it's short pitch bowling. He hasn't really had that. He's done brilliantly against whatever he's come come up against so far. Whereas Crawley's questions are just, as we've said for ages, just very different than normal players. However, I, I would still say, despite all that, I, I, I think Crawley is so vulnerable to the moving ball early on. And those caveats against Duckett this winter also apply to Crawley this winter. Crawley really struggled against Salvi in the first innings in particular. He basically was out three times in 14 balls. And I was just thinking, oh, I, I, really, I think he's going to really struggle. And I think I think Duckett might as well in the summer. But I, I think, I basically think Crawley's not an opener. He's not a test opener. I think, he, I think he'd have a really good chance of a successful test career if he was down at five or six. But he got his opportunity up top, did okay-ish. And he's kind of stuck. I'm just not sure it's the best place for him. Yeah, I guess there's, um, I've got two things to add really. Firstly is that, you don't have to bring in Bairstow as an opener, I guess. In England could get even funkier or not even funkier, but rejig things more. I think if you look at that team, in a way, I think the one who is the most likely to have success as an opener would be Harry Brook, but you have the most to lose there. So I doubt they would do that. You could also, Stokes might think like, well, if, 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 if it is just about going out and being ultra aggressive and if it comes off great, and if not, well, lots of people get out of the Duke's ball, he might think, yeah, I might give that a go myself sort of thing. That there are, It's not just a Bairstow versus Crawley opening thing is what I'm saying. You could bring Bairstow back in 
and push someone else up to open, possibly. The other thing I'd say is that I think we do, we, we deserve giving Duckett a bit more praise just for that innings in the first innings. That's, that's the most important innings of the game, I think, right? In the, um, uh, with how this, you know, with, with everything that surrounds this England team, I think teams will be almost not quite licking their lips, but thinking that, uh, you know, they would really love to be the one to, you know, bring it all kind of crashing down. And so that it makes that first stretch of the game so, so important that if, you know, if you're like, oh, wow, this isn't just all smoke and mirrors, there is something kind of brilliant going on here. And then when Duckett comes out and plays like that, it was what, it was nine fours he hit in the first 10 overs. And there was a range of shots there as well. Like in, in it's interesting because he was picked, or there was some suggestion he was picked as a spin specialist kind of thing in Pakistan. And he is brilliant against spin, but he's also in a way limited against spin. He makes the absolute most of his limitations in that it makes a strength out of a weakness. But he showed a very rounded game against the quicks. Like he was on driving beautifully. He was cover driving really well. There were cut shots. There were pull shots. He looked a really secure player of the short ballers, I thought, actually. I mean, I know it's not facing Stark yeah. and Cummins, but... Slow, slow pitch. And I think there were quite a lot of four balls. So yeah, yeah he played brilliantly, but I don't think that that was an innings that says... No, no, this it's, guy it's, it's definitely not massive tick against, against brilliant, you know. Yeah, that, that, that that's true. But it was also the most important innings of the game. I think it's worth just, and, and it is, I think, yeah, I guess the, the second test, it's 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 still another big one for, for both of them, I suppose. Yeah, I like him. I like him a lot. I like how uncomplicated he is. Uh, we've seen a few England openers who, as Ricky Ponting put it, make it look so difficult. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, and there's a, there's a fluency to it and, and, a, and a simplicity to it. Um, and, and, while, you know, Crawley was a sitting duck in the first innings, as you quite rightly say, he also played nicely alongside Duckett in the second innings. And that 60-odd partnership that the two of them put together was critical in the context of the game because New Zealand had their tails up. Uh, admittedly, you know, they are struggling with that bowling attack, but you never know if they've got going in the in the evening session under lights. But those two played nicely, really. And, and Crawley, you know, you've got... I do tear my hair out because he, he, again, he again he was as fluent as you can get. He looked pretty tight, pretty solid defensively, and then under under toe ended a a long hop from from an ordinary geezer, um, and that was pretty frustrating, really, because you know he'd done nicely for thirty odd, just as I say, Duckett had as well. Tom Blundell was excellent, by the way. Yeah, um, I mean, look, such that's the innings good innings. Yeah. He really does such deserve. a good innings. I mean, he's averaging forty five in Test cricket now. Uh, Organised, proactive, and I guess the greatest compliment is that. Not only have New Zealand not really missed Watling at all, like in, in a test Blundell's played against England, Blundell has got the ability to change the momentum in a way that Watling didn't really have. He was more of a supporting, a brilliant supporting act. But Blundell, um, I thought, was, yeah, he was superb. Um, New Zealand, we mentioned it, we, we kind of alluded to it earlier, but New Zealand came under a fair bit of criticism for the selection of Scott Kugeline. Um Kugeline was making his test debut, but he's made a handful of white ball appearances for New Zealand over the last three or four years. Um, in 2015, he was charged with rape and was subsequently tried twice with a hung jury in 2016, followed by a not guilty verdict in early 2017. Uh, details heard by the two juries have led to his prior New Zealand selections being met with public criticism. There was a very good piece in uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly a couple of years ago by Jeff Lemon uh, that is now on wisdom.com that I'd highly recommend people reading on the topic. Can I just say as well, the, the only thing I'd add to this is that there can be that some people might say, well, you, you just got to pick your best cricket team. There's nothing else that comes into it. But New Zealand actively chose not to select Trent Bolt for this game because he's on contract. And that's a, in a way a separate conversation, but it shows that 
they could have picked a better team for this game if they wanted to and chose not to for things other than straightforwardly cricketing reasons. And yet, so they are happy to that in some circumstances, but not in others, I suppose. Um, I wouldn't want him in my team. You know, I would feel uncomfortable with that. There was a quote from New Zealand coach Gary Stead I wasn't particularly comfortable with. He was asked about the selection of Kugeline for the test and he said, we have gone with a resilient character from a bowling point of view, which I think is completely missing the point. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend Jeff Peace. If you Google Jeff Lemon, Scott Kugeline, that'll come up. Phil, you got a world exclusive story during the test match. Um, <laughs> you were fascinated by the shoes that were worn by the BT Sport pundits and then you did a bit of sleuthing uh, to work out what was going on this is my finest journalistic moment so I've been morbidly fascinated by pundit shoes for quite a while now because every time you turn on one of the one of the paid for channels you have these bizarre looking shoes with with a kind of a big white sole and a, like a blackish leather leather covering and they sort of Evidently, they probably do the job of being a kind of dressed down smart shoe. So it gives the impression because cricket and football, it's now, it's now kind of buoyant and it's all a little bit jolly and so on. And so these shoes just, they fit right in there and you see everybody wearing them from, you know, Jermaine Genus, Jamie Redknapp in the football and now all cricket pundits wear them as well. Uh, and I've been wondering how these things have come about and if, they're, if you have to sign a contract to wear them, very strange. Anyway, on the cricket, on the on BT, and it was a good show, by the way. Uh, I quite enjoyed watching it. Matt Smith, the presenter, um, Alistair Cook, and Chris Wokes. And on day two, they were all wearing exactly the same shoes. Uh, and so, you lot were telling me, ludicrously... I had nothing to do with this. Joe Harmon, um, and you, Gardner, you were telling me, well, they get given them, don't they? When they turn up in the in the studio, they get they get given these shoes, as if the, this is literally the uniform that they have to wear in the studio, and I found that hard to believe. So I texted Chris Wokes while he was on the telly, and I said to him, "You know, good work, mate, but just clear something up for us. Do you have to wear those shoes?" And he said, "No, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> just that by chance we were all wearing the same ones." Anyway, day three, tune in. Friday night, Saturday morning, and he's changed his shoes, Wokesy. He's gone out and bought some box fresh whites and he's changed <laughs> his shoes. So I texted him again about two in the morning. I said, oh, you've done that just for me? And he said, yeah, mate, just for you, mate. <laughs> so there you go. So it turns out that, that, that Christopher Wokes uh, is master of his own footwear mm. until I tap him on the shoulder and tell him to change them. I thought the coverage was really good. Um, mm, it was. Cook is becoming a really good pundit. Mm. Um he, uh, he knows he knows the game surprisingly enough, <laughs> but, but he's becoming a more yeah. polished deliverer. But, but also in terms of, I think you you can tell this, there there were points in the test match where things weren't going great for England. I think one of the great tricks of this team is sometimes it just feels like it's going better than it actually is. There are points <laughs> where you're like, actually, New Zealand get one more wicket here. They are definitely on top. That period when uh, Stokes is in the loo and folks comes out to bat. If England, if, if England lose another wicket there, New Zealand are massive favourites because the pitch is pretty flat. England use a new ball, not under lights. Um, and I think Cook's very good at explaining the thinking of the England dressing room. Anyway, let's hear from Butch on the test match, but also his time out in Pakistan. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Butch joins us from Pakistan. Um, Butch, in, in many ways, that was a very impressive England win. Um, if you're being hypercritical, though, England played a test match on the same pitch, same ground four years ago. They scored more runs in that game and still lost by an innings. England obviously did really well to take as many new ball wickets under lights as they did here. But it's some of the more senior England players England might not be getting the most out of as they take this hyper-aggressive approach. And Root made some interesting comments today about potentially not getting the tempo quite right. And you famously brought the topic up with Stokes himself at the end of the Oval Test match. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I did. I got booed as well by the Oval crowd. I don't think, I don't think they listened to what I asked him specifically. But um, yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I suppose looking at it from a, a completely positive point of view, um, how much more potent are England's bowlers now than they were then? Um, g- even given the fact that, you know, that Anderson abroad are still, are still the, the, the ones with all the potency. But just that, that change of mindset in terms of um, putting the opposition under so much pressure uh, for, for in, in terms of trying to take wickets as opposed to trying to, to contain. Um, and, and also, I'm guessing that oppositions now are kind of... It must go into the back of your mind as a, as, a, as an opposition team or an opposition captain that you're that you're kind of crapping yourself all of the time, thinking to yourself, oh "My God, they could get five hundred in a day," and how that plays around with your you know plays around with your thinking and the way that you when you've got bat in hand, um, does it make you a little bit sort of nervy? Does it make you think that you've got to match that that sort of tempo, or does it or does it make you think, "Oh my goodness, we can't afford to kind of give them a chance here." Um, and then with the ball in hand, it kind of you know it puts you on the back foot before you've even bowled a ball. So all of that um, that that sort of different way of thinking from England will have an effect on the opposition, even if they score below par on on, on what looked to be a pretty good pitch. Um, I mean, obviously the, the 2019 game was not a day night game either, so there's another thing to throw into the to the mix there. But I think Joe Root's comments are interesting because, as you rightly said, I, I brought up with Ben um, Stokes at, at the Oval that I felt, not that the, the England's approach was wrong, because, I mean, it can't have been, can it? I mean, they, they kept winning test matches and they and they continue to keep winning test matches. But that for, for, for certain players, and on that occasion, I was directing it at the captain um, and the way that he was kind of giving his wicket away and perhaps selling himself short as a run maker um, in, in the side. And now Joe Rue, who's, you know, destined to be England's greatest ever run scorer, is finding it a little bit tricky to kind of go out there and, and, and maintain... The, the mad tempo that they're, that they're trying to go at. Um, and, you know, he's played his entire career and been unbelievably good at playing uh, test match cricket in a, in a more um, a more regular fashion. And so, you know, it, it, it must, it will niggle at him a tiny little bit. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm kind of, I'm giving my wicket away here. Why am I doing that? I've spent my entire career not, not doing that, trying to be a bit more ruthless and I've been very successful at it. So look, it, it it's, I, I wonder, and part of the reason why I asked Ben that question was, was it? Is it the case that perhaps some of the more senior players could still could still be playing a slightly less gung ho fashion in order to knit things together and allow the other lesser players in inverted commas and, and certainly don't put Harry Brook into that um, category, you know, allow expect them and be happy for them to go out and be more expressive, um, you know, and and I think that the, the whole thing is is still evolving. 
Um, and that at some point there is going to be a, there's going to be a tipping point whereby Joe says to himself, you know what, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm in great form. I keep giving the opposition a chance to get me out. I'm capable of making 150s, 200s, and I can do them at a rate of 60 anyway. You know, that, which is which only a, a year ago was considered to be pretty damn swift in, in Test match cricket. So why am I trying to score a run a ball when when it's not really necessary? Mm-hmm. So look. I'm not. I, I'm definitely not saying it's wrong because it, it can't be. They keep winning Test matches, but I do feel that there is a balance that they haven't quite found yet between, um, you know, all-out attack, all-out sort of lethal um, intent, and perhaps sometimes just going. You know what? We'll we'll take the runs here. We'll make sure that we get we we get what we need. We'll have passages of play where we'll go a bit nuts, um, and then we'll allow our bowlers to go and do their thing, which they're doing so wonderfully well at the moment. Um, looking ahead to the next Test match. England have had four test matches in a row where there have been there's been good reason why to bat in a different way to normal. Uh, in Pakistan, they need to inject time into the tests to give them as much of a chance to take 20 wickets as possible. In the first test match here, um, they really clearly wanted to bowl with a new ball under light. So they want to score as many runs as possible to allow themselves to declare or end their innings by that point. We could have a normal-ish test match on a normal-ish pitch. In the summer... Um, last year, you had normalist pitches in England. Obviously, there were moments where um, you know Besto had his succession of knocks halfway through the summer. But the Old Trafford win, for example, Stokes and folks batted pretty normally. So, do you think there's do you think it's, there's a chance that England actually revert into a more traditional-ish way of playing um, in the next Test match, given given what what we might face? I, I think I think that they will, uh, and I think one of the real key things about um, about uh, uh, Brendan and, and Ben's approach is that they kind of play it by ear and, and try and do what's right on the day without looking too far ahead or saying, right, this is what we're going to do. I think we as the media um, uh, have been, have got suckered into a little bit into the idea that all of this is, is, is planned out meticulously beforehand and they go out and, and they, and they, and they um, pull it off. I think basically they kind of take it, whatever, whichever way the breeze is blowing on a particular day, they will then, you know, go go in that direction. And from speaking to Rob Key, which interestingly enough, there's a great interview with uh, um, with, with Rob. Uh, I, I was the uh, I was the straight man, and, and uh, where he goes into that in, in some detail, actually. So look look forward to to that um, when it finally comes out. Um, and he spoke about sort of the idea that they kind of they turn up and make up their mind what's going to happen, or at least as the, as the day evolves, they will then decide. Okay. Will flick the switch and go in this particular way. So I, I don't know. I mean, at, at Wellington, who knows? It, it tends to be a pretty pretty orthodox place to play cricket. The wind plays plays quite a big factor, but other than that, there isn't much else. Um, you know, the Kiwis probably felt that they they stymied um, England a little bit by winning the toss and sticking them in. You know, but but England have found a way of winning Test matches both ways round. It's not simply a case of chasing down targets at um, at the moment. So I, I still think that there, there will be there will be some madness for sure in whichever way, shape, or form it comes. There will be there will be something silly that happens in Wellington, and you wouldn't bet against them putting another W in the column either. Um, you're obviously in Pakistan at the moment. You're you're working on the Pakistan Super League. As always, there's a lot of cricket going on. But one of the things that people might not have seen is that Pakistan have another guy who's young, who's not really played much before, who bowls 92, 93 miles per hour. Do you want to tell us about? Um, Isanullah, who's who's, caught, who's created a few headlines. Yeah, well, he's got twelve wickets so far in what four games, including a, a five for twelve. Um, he knocked over 
Baba Azam with the first ball that he bowled at him um, for pace. You know, it was it was it was the key matchup before the game started. You know, the, this young kid who's, who's generating real pace. He's tall as well, tall, quick, got an incredible action. Sprints in, comes over the top, got a really great sort of long hand, long wrist that kind of snaps over later, and he is genuinely fast. Um, he has no idea about cricket whatsoever. Talking to <laughs> Azrael um, Shazad, who's out here, is, is the bowling coach of the Multan Sultans, and talking to Andy Flower. No clue whatsoever. Can't field, doesn't, barely knows what the fielding positions are, whatever. He literally, all he can do is he gets the ball in his hand and he turns into this athlete who can run in and bowl absolute thunderbolts. Um, so he is, um, you know, they, they've unearthed yet another um, fast bowling prodigy. Uh, prodigy out of um, out of nowhere uh, and very very, very exciting you know uh, that they, they've also got a couple of batters as well there's a left-hander who actually was catching because he walked to the crease after um after the wicket early wickets had fallen a left-hander who's uh, uh just done really well in the domestic competition over here called uh, Saeem Ayub left-hander um he came out and, and first ball off Isanula just rocked onto the front foot, pinged him through through backward point, and then next ball on the hip, he flicked him um, sort of Thorpe and Lara style off his hip for six out of the park. He thought, "Wow, you know what a matchup!" These two young kids going at each other. Um, so there's, you know, there's some there's some incredible talent out here, mm. uh, as you would imagine. Um, and it's 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 been a lot of fun so far. I mean, a lot, lot of games to go, but it's been a lot of fun. Mm. We talked a lot about um, how various leagues compare against each other when there was that period a few weeks ago when there were, there were four or five happening at the same time. Pakistan Super League has its own window in a way. Um, what, what do you think other leagues can learn from the Pakistan Super League? I guess at one level, it's quite interesting that they've they've still only got six teams. Um, a, lot of, a lot of leagues have, have been tempted to increase the number of matches, increase the number of teams to help them do that. Um, the, the quality seems, you know, despite the absence of maybe, you know, top, top, tier uh, overseas players um, the quality seems to be really really strong and that's something that you know and the crowds really help as well like when you're watching on the TV there's a really good energy to it yeah absolutely um, all of that I, I think I don't know I don't think there's much you could learn from, from a league like PSL because as with all of these you're only as good the league is only as good as the, t- the, the local talent that you have um, so example if you're, if you're comparing it to say that the 100 back at home um, you know, we very rarely with the with the franchise teams that we have are, are able to put the England players or whatever, you know, our best our best players on the park for all of those games in the in the teams that we have. Um, but obviously, the PSL has its own window, so all of the Pakistan um, top top guys are sort of available here. But also, when it comes to the bowling, I mean, bowling is the key to, to key to cricket, isn't it? If you've got high quality bowlers, um, then the then the standard is elevated immediately. Uh, and one thing that Pakistan are never short of is just being able to to, to unearth, um, you know, quick bowler after quick bowler after quick bowler. So some of the spin is perhaps not not that great. Although there's a, there's a guy who's also played for Multan Sultan's called Osama Mir, who's played a little bit of, uh, of limited over stuff for Pakistan, who looked really really good as well. Um, and the batting, um, I was talking to Dominic Cork because he's been out here sort of four or five years. I've only done maybe a couple prior to this. Or bits of a couple prior to this, and it always seemed as though the batting was just, a, you know, was was a little bit short in terms of um, the talent around. But that seems to have, have have got a lot better as well this this season. 
So look, I mean, it's 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 all about you. It's all about what you can do with your local talent. None of these leagues can rely, apart from the the IPL, where everybody drops everything to go and play. None of these leagues can rely on being able to call upon the the best overseas players um, uh, to to fill out their ranks. Although, you know, there there are some damn good ones here. But if your if your local talent is is hot, then uh, then you've got yourself a good league. Well, it's been fun to watch off the TV so far, and yeah, looking forward to hearing how the rest of the competition goes. Cheers, for your time, Butch. Catch you next week. Prices on all whiz and ales are at an all time low, with up to forty five percent off on our packs of pale and amber ales. Each can design features a different Wisden Cricketer of the Year and for every can we will include a free Wisden Cricketer of the Year collectible beer mat. You can find these on sale now at the Wisden shop available in packs of 6, 12 or 24. Wisden chalices and tankards are also available on sale at the perfect complement to all our ales. India have retained the Border Gavaskar Trophy after about five days of cricket with Australia basically losing all 10 wickets in the second innings in a session for the second time into test. Jadeja took 10 in the match. Um, halfway through day two, though, Australia were well on top. Kawaja hit 81 in the first inning to take them to 263. India were 139 for seven in reply before Aksar Patel and Ravi Chandra and Ashwin took them to parity. Um, and then Australia had an extraordinary collapse. England have had some special ones over the years, but I think this was this is right up there. They were 95 for three and they were very quickly 95 for seven. Um, and then all out for 113 and uh, India comfortably chased that down. Um, quite an interesting contrast with what was going on in Mount Monganui. Australia clearly had a plan, which was to sweep pretty much everything. And like England, in a way, what was important wasn't the result, but was sticking and trusting, um, sticking to and trusting the process. So despite this procession, every batter firmly stick to what had been decided, uh, bearing quite similar results. Phil, I, I get that playing India in India is as difficult as it gets, but Australia showed for one and a half days that they can really compete. And it was kind of frustrating seeing how quickly they crumbled because I thought they really had a chance. They looked like ghosts uh, looking on in the dressing room. And when Pat Cummins uh, played one of the all-time stinkers to his first ball to lose, I think, the seventh wicket, uh, they were just looking at each other like they were spooked, the whole of them. Smith was looking at Labashain, who was looking at Warner, and, and and they could not believe what they were seeing. Uh, it was a, it was an all-time classic collective psychological collapse, and you know books have been written about about a cricket collapse, a batting collapse, but this was a, a vintage one, and it was like they were all locked in the same um, kind of. Fever dream, almost. Got to sweep, got to sweep, got to sweep. And it became more and more ludicrous the, the further it went. Contrast that with what happened afterwards. India went out and needed, I think, 116. Sharma hit one of the all-time great 20-ball 30s. It was like Len Hutton at Sydney. It was just sensational. Um, and even Pajara as well, running down the track, hitting down the ground. Daring to go up over the, the infield for sure, but hitting down the ground constantly. There was one sweep, no, there was two sweeps played, one from Kohli, one from Sharma, both paddle sweeps to balls well down the leg side. There was nothing across the line. There was nothing from outside off stump. There were no hoiks, there were no slog sweeps, there were no reverse sweeps. There was nothing of any, any funk or fancy whatsoever. It was just dominant, old-fashioned style uh, Brilliance against the turning ball. And, you know, that's it in, in a nutshell. Australia, just like with England, they don't really have 
the wherewithal um, to, to deal with it. And, and Indian batters, of course, are reared on it. And they also have the, the absolute clarity of mind to go, to go and play in that kind of way. Whereas Australia seemed like they were caught between three or four different theories and ended up just collapsing on the floor in a heap. Pajora and Jadeja were asked about Australia's plan after the game and both categorically said, you do not sweep when the bounce is inconsistent like that. Uh, my main... You would think that would be pretty evident. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a truism. Mark Wall was saying that on the commentary throughout. Why, why are they doing this when it's up and down? Every commentator was saying the same thing. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking, that Australia team is experienced. There's a lot of players there who've played in India. How have they landed on this? There are some sections of Australia media who have responded to this, that collapse, and said, well, in, in Australia tried to block it in Nagpur, and they were bowled out in a session, so they had to try something different. Like, no, for one and a half innings, they were going really well. They were going really well by having a pretty nuanced approach, which was, you know, different batters have different strengths. The sweep was working pretty well for Labuschagne. Um, That doesn't mean it's going to work well for everyone else. Travis Head hit a really good 40. He got out to a very good ball from Ashwin early on day three. But he was doing well by playing to his own strengths. It wasn't this premeditated plan. And that was a huge moment, by the way, yeah, because definitely. I think he was 30-something, 30 39 not out, maybe overnight, at a run of ball, obviously having been hilariously dropped for that first test match, promoted because Warner got concussed. Uh, and he went out there and creamed a four through the covers, first over off Ashwin, and then just got an, an Ash, he got Ashwind and a stunner, one of those ones where it bananas in from round the wicket, turns, grips just enough. Decent block, nicked, good catch, that's it, done. And then it begins and the anxieties just come to the fore when you see that happen. You could understand how garbled the team gets and you've seen it with many, many good cricket teams. It reminded me actually of England Armoured a bad third test match when Bairstow swept twice and and went out second innings and, and swept his first ball and got lucky and then swept his second and got bowled and everybody else was behaving strangely. So I get it. I get where it how it happens, but... In this particular instance, it was, it was, it must have been so, so demoralising for them because they were in a position. India were 130 for seven, in reply to 260. So halfway there, with set with three wickets left, Axar goes out. It's 70, and India win comfortably, uh, cruising it after two and a half days. You less know. than a day later, yeah, India won the test yeah. match. Yeah, and so, so they will be totally shocked uh, and wondering where the hell they go from now. You know, it's hard to avoid the sense that it's going to be a whitewash. And the, the coach, Andrew McDonald, he talked about, he described it as perceived pressure that was the uh, the cause of the collapse. So I think basically right. saying that almost the enormity of what they had, not within their grasp, but, you know, as a possibility of beating India in a test in India on that sort of surface, that was there when you're 85 for two uh, and you know what the pitch is doing. And it was almost as if it was if it was that. And, and with the sweep shots as well, it wasn't just that it was inconsistent bounce. They were sweeping properly straight balls. Like it's a perfectly fine option if you can get your leg really far down, and then you know that you know you should hit it. And if you miss it, it hits your leg, and you, you've you've kind of got outside the line, kind of thing. Steve Smith thought he'd done that mm. against Ashwin. He thought it was well outside off stump, and you're thinking, okay, I'll get my my pad outside the line even if it does turn back it's going to either miss leg stump or I'll, or I'll be outside the line but Ashwin's such a genius and I don't think that's recognised enough I think he's too easily taken for granted and especially across the world game 
because there is that wrong and lazy perception, well, he's a bit of a homer. Well, he is a genius. There's no two ways about it. And he deserves to be considered up there with the finest spinners of all time in my in my yeah book. and, and Jadeja gets all the headlines because he took seven but it was Ashwin yeah the really he, he, got, he got them out yeah he got he got he changed the dimension of that innings and, mm. and the Smith ball was an absolute jaffer brilliant umpiring again by Michael Goff by the way um because to me it looked like both of those things weren't happening that he both got his leg outside the line and that it would be missing off stump because it's ragged well it's hitting leg stump halfway up and he's in line you so, know uh Andrew Wu the Australian journalist tweeted um Ash, Ashwin and Jadeja bowling against Smith and Labuschagne. This is as good as it gets. And I was thinking, well, you got Michael Goff umpiring as well. <laughs> this, 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 this is the don't very best. <laughs> don't, don't forget Michael Goff. Right, as I said the other week, I enjoy these kinds of test matches. Right, I don't have a problem with test matches being done in three, three and a half days. But it is an interesting contrast with the previous era, the Tendulkar-Dravid era, the Ganguly era, and then inherited by Dhoni. Because you'd get the odd turner, and if India were behind in a series, you could expect a turner for the third or the fourth test match. But invariably, back back then, late 90s into the, into the noughties and so on, and the tour that I went on, the 2012 tour that England somehow managed to win, those, those pitches, they would offer turn at some point, but your legends would get runs. You, you, and Tendulkar ensured that as well. Uh, Everybody knows that he would have had great influence in the pitches that were being prepared. Similarly, India didn't adopt DRS because their their legendary batters were sus- were suspicious of it and skeptical of of its uh, efficiency. And so, BCCI rejected it for a number of years. The only board to do so, and that was consistent with the power of their great players and the numbers that those great players were building up. Uh, and so, you would get. Test matches that would sometimes roll on to the end. Sometimes there wouldn't be a result. Um, and you can think again of that tour, that 2012 tour, which is only, what, 10 or 11 years ago. And even the fourth Test match at Nagpur was a bore draw, even though England were 2-1 up in the series. Armored bad in that Test match, Cook batted for two days across days four and, and much of day five. Now, now it seems like pretty much every pitch that you come up against in India is offering something very, from a very early, early point in the game and it's interesting that the legendary players Coley etc are having to adjust their numbers to reflect a more challenging uh, track that they have to face on a on a bi-weekly basis and just from an Indian fans point of view many of whom are particularly interested in stats and numbers and you know constantly talking about where Kohli fits in the in the the pantheon and so on and Sharma as well and and Pajara. If you are having to play on tracks that are turning right from the start, is that entirely satisfying for Indian fans? If the result is invariably that India are going to win, I don't know what the answer is, and obviously people, different people will have different opinions. But well, it's an, it's an interesting contrast with how it used to be. I think I think it's more recent than that as well. Actually, yeah, I mean, yeah, that the change happened. So because if you remember the England series in 2016-17, those those were again five. Pretty flat pitch, you know. Yeah, Moen makes two hundreds yeah. in the series. England, you know, score loads in the first test, and well, England kept scoring four hundred fifteen, losing one innings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and Karunar was that his Karunair, name? Karunair triple hundred. Yeah, yeah, made a triple hundred. Yeah, and England got five hundred. India would get seven fifty. There used to be, I think, a school of thought that 
playing on that kind of surface actually was that that was in India they, they felt that they were unbeatable those and they were for quite a long time you know they had the batters to to never get beaten and they had the bowlers who were good enough on flat wickets and you'd, you'd add Ashwin to that on wickets that would turn maybe a bit late in the game but they had a brilliant pace attack um, and that's what, how they would do it and then if pitches were turning a lot then actually that could make only you know decent spinners uh, it would narrow the gap between those and uh, that and Ashwin and Jadeja. And you saw in a series against South Africa in maybe 2015, I think, there was one test there that ended up being close um, because of how much it was turning. And then they got beaten in that first test against Australia in 2017, again, on, on a surface where it was uh, you know, it was more, more of a lottery almost, or that it, it, it really did narrow the gap. And then, so you had the, the, the flat pitches kind of going on and then you're backing themselves. And then you get to the first test of that 2021 series against England. And, you know, Root plays out of his skin. Anderson bowls a terrific spell of reverse swing. India lose on that kind of surface, basically for the first time in this current era in the Kohli, Ashwin, Jadeja era. And uh, that's where, you know, when we saw what the pitches were like for the rest of that series. You know, again, you know, questions to be had over some of them. Others were turning, but, you know, kind of fine. But they weren't the same as we had seen and as India had built up their dominance. And I think it almost comes from that batting lineup is just now more fallible than it was. Kohli is not, you know, the you know the the player who's averaging sixty. Pajara is not the you know the the model of you know defensive solidity. Rahane is, is is you know dropped dropped off and out now at the side. It's a part of that is the pitches though. I completely agree with you saying. I mean, Rahane did an interview after he got dropped from the side where he said like you know the pitches in the last few years. That is a big part of why those three middle order titans their record has quite significantly fallen off in recent times. And I think. Um, yeah, I don't you think can any guarantee of... that Coley quietly will be a bit peeved yeah, that he's I mean, playing in this particular era. To be to be complete, to be clear, I don't have a problem with the pitch that it had in Delhi. I do wonder though, like first of all, from an enjoyment point of view, I like seeing um, a range of pitches on tours rather than they're quite homogenous at the moment, and, I, and I'd like to see. Yeah, these two teams face each other on a pitch like Chennai first test in. Well, in we had a question about the. World Test Champs final, and if it is going to be India Australia, which it pretty much will be, is so that Sri right? Lanka, Sri Lanka not. need to win two nil in New Zealand for it not to be, which is unlikely. But if they do, do they qualify Sri Lanka? I think if yeah, I think they've got a pretty good chance. Of I think, but I, th- I think I think if India, oh, I can't remember. I think if it's two all or four nil, Sri Lanka in the final with a two nil win in New Zealand. But it could very easily be four nil. And although it's unlikely that Sri Lanka win 2-0 in yeah. New Zealand against the weakened side, it's not entirely It's impossible. not impossible. Chris Silverwood in the World Test Championship Chris final. Who would have thought that? Uh, anyway, if, if it is as, <laughs> as is likely India-Australia, then I think we did have a question regarding that. You know, does this make India outright favourites? Well, I think it probably makes them favourites by a nose, but I think they would have been favourites anyway, but only by a nose because the conditions are going to be entirely different at the Oval in June. Um, the thing with India that they do have such a versatile team, you know, they've got a, they've got a gun pace attack, so so they can they can adjust depending on where they're at. But uh, the it's a massive equaliser, obviously. But I, I guess also the um, uh, the question is, is is how this tour ends up affecting Australia because it is building up to be a real horror tour in, in quite a few ways. I mean, so Cummins is he's flown home from the tour. He might be back from the th- third test, but um, he's a uh, uh, for family reasons, he's flown oh, home between, between yeah, the second and third test. Yeah, um, uh, David Warner's obviously concussed, but also is it fractured elbow he's got? Um, and then you've also just got the fact that 
losing is a habit that can keep breeding. I mean, we just mentioned Chris Silverwood. Everything was going actually quite well up until England lose that India series. And then England couldn't find a way to to break that habit, essentially. And then it ends up sort of costing a lot of people their jobs. Australia, they are, no, this doesn't tell us anything about what Australia are like in conditions in England or conditions in Australia. But the fact is that they will have, they might have come into the summer having lost four tests in a row with, you know, Cummins perhaps much less secure in his job with, you know, who knows where Warner will be. And that that's, it's almost the fact that India will just have beaten Australia 4-0 and Australia have lost four tests in a row will go a bit more to making India uh, that that'll just have something they'll have in their back pocket. Yeah, kind of thing. it's just so hard though, isn't it? In a one-off game, it, it's so hard to predict really how much of a hangover, if any, it will have. If Australia win the toss on a on a flat one and get away and you know get to lunch 60 for one or 80 for one, then I don't think they're going to be thinking about Delhi three months ago. Yeah, and, and also, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll do a proper preview in about three months' time. Sure. But, the, but, but the overall pitch last summer and was... And Sri Lanka was are going pre- to be in it anyway. Yeah, well, the overall pitch last summer, I was going to say, was, was pretty juicy. It was, it was, it was the least flat uh, I can remember an oval pitch being across the summer. I think they'll make um, it as flat as they can for this one. Nick asks, um, with India seemingly unbeatable at home, what does a best World Eleven look like to give them the best game at home? That's a lovely um, question. Ben, we, we thought about this and we did a, a quick thing on the on the website. Um, do you want to reel through the team that Ooh, we Yeah, selected? I'm, I'm sure to remember as well. Actually. Um, I didn't well, whilst it remembering it, I was, I was thinking during the test match, I really want to see India v India in India. Um, honestly, one team <laughs> with Ashwin, one team with Jadeja, one team with Rohit, one with Kohli. Um, because they basically have 22 test players, if not more, who have actually done pretty well recently. Um, I mean, India C beat Australia in Australia. Um, but yeah, Ben, what, what is that World eleven to beat India in India? So on the batting lineup, there, I think there were four basic must picks, but one controversial omission or a couple of controversial omissions. So we had Conway opening. I'm going to come to the other opening segment. We had Conway opening. Obviously, brilliant all form opener. Maybe slightly newer than the others, but and he's done it in India. <laughs> exactly. So we had, we had Conway opening. I think our three to... Five was it Labashane, Root, Smith, and that order? Is that right? Um, uh, I'm did, not sure Labashane was in we, it. We went Babar, did we? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it was Babar, Labashane was the one key you know your audience. choice in there. Well, yeah, it was tricky because you had Labashane's evidence of the brilliant 100 in Sri Lanka last year, but Babar made a better 100 in Sri Lanka in turning conditions, obviously. We don't know what Babar's record in India could, could ever be like. Um, uh, we had Stokes at six. He doesn't have the best numbers in India, but I think if you're going to beat India in India, you need all the confidence you can get. And you need a general with a plan who can stick to the plan. And that is Ben Stokes. You always pick him as much for his captaincy. He's got a good record with the ball as well in those sorts of conditions. Made 100, didn't he, out there in 2017? He did, yeah. On a, on a, on a, on a flat, flat one. one but yeah. yeah. Um, the other opener, we were between um, Tom Latham and Dimith Karunaratne. Tom Latham had a, a good test in India uh, at the end of last year, I think. Um, but overall has a, a poor record against Australia, India, New Zealand, the best three sides in the world, and a good record, sorry, Australia, India, and England, the best three sides in the world, and a poor record against the others. Karuna Ratne, I would say, is a better I'd pick all-round him. player, but he has a very poor record in India. So I'd pick him. Yaz went Karuna Ratne, I would go, sorry, Yaz went Latham, I would go Karuna Ratne. Karuna Ratne. Uh, keeping, we went for... Litton Das. We did go for Litton Das, yeah. And there's a few options there. I mean, you could argue... Get Ben Folks in at, at number eight just for the, the strength of his keeping. Uh, get Rizwan in, we know he's brilliant. Mushka Rahim is, he was the one who's lengthened the battle, one of most, hasn't kept much recently. But Litton Das is kind of combines a very good keeper, good attacking player. Uh, Shakib Alassane at number eight, or number seven, no, number eight in the number end. Number eight, wasn't he? yeah. Yeah, which you need all the bang depth you can get, obviously. Brilliant. No, no questions there. Um, leave the other spinner for a second. The quicks we went for, we did go for Shaheen, didn't we? Shaheen and Anderson, I think. If you're maximizing the new ball, if you're hoping that 
the quicks are there, you know, they're luxury players in that team. They are there to make an impact and not to do much else. Those are the two best players in the world based on what they've done in, you know, in, in conditions that aren't conducive to swing and seam bowling. Um, if you want two players to make, to take two wickets with the new ball, I think you'd back those out of everyone. And the other spinner was, uh, this was almost the toughest one because you've got Nathan Lyon, who is, you know, the best off spinner in world cricket. He's not Ashwin and he turns the ball the other way to Shakib. But he, I think we've seen a lot of Lyon in India and I know he took five in this game and maybe maybe it would be different now, I'm not sure, but he has not, you know, been able to contribute to a team getting, you know, he took, it, this was very close, but we ov- overall felt that Lyon wasn't quite the ones we went for, we actually went for Rashid Khan. I think you've got to, if you're picking like a, a you need some, some sort of X factor here, you know, that if you just pick players who, you know, <laughs> and he is a very good test record. He has actually done stuff in India, not against Indian India, but when Afghanistan have played test there, he's, he's done very well. Even against Bangladesh, he got, uh, he took what eleven wickets in a game, I think. Um, I, I was the one who's pro. I was, I was anti-Lion just because he's played a lot in India and yeah. he's done okay at best overall. But but you need you need your spinner to be winning you the game really. And Lion has yet to be a match winner in India. There have been spells here and there which have been excellent. He is a brilliant bowler. I'm not I'm not questioning that. But if there is a chance that Rashid Khan might be the match winner in this team in a way that maybe Lion is, is less to know. And that's sort of in thing. fairness to Lion, it wasn't his fault that they didn't win this test match. Yes, that's true. Um, uh, England and Australia are through to the semi-finals of the T20 World Cup. India are likely to qualify in second place from that England group. South Africa are likely to qualify from the Australia group despite the opening day loss to Sri Lanka. Um, it was a very good win for England the other day. They beat India despite Ranuka Singh taking five for 15. Um, that result means they should avoid Australia in the semi-final. Um, Paul asks, this may seem a bit churlish given that England um, have won every game so far, but I think England need to make a couple of changes. I think it might be time to drop Danny Wyatt and um, Catherine Siver-Brunt. Wyatt has never been consistent, but I can't remember um, the last time she made a contribution at the top of the order. I thought after the 50 over World Cup that Siver-Brunt should have retired. She struggled then and I think time has finally caught up with her. I'd bring in Maya Bouchier and move everyone up one place. I doubt Capsi will be intimidated by opening the batting. I'd probably select Davies over Cross for the seamer role. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take it one by one. On on Wyatt, I think she's fine, to be honest. I mean, so she's, I. she's never been the most consistent, but there's a few things in her favour. One, if she does fail, she's not failing in a damaging way. You're looking in this tournament, she made 11 off 9, 6 and off 13 and not off 1. None of those have actually harmed England, really. I mean, that's kind of the nature of T20 cricket. She's not going to get stuck. Um, her record last year was actually kind of fine. I think she was averaging what mid twenties, striking in the one twenties, one thirties, which is which is which is which is fine. It's okay for an opener, especially when England bat as deep as they do. I think the main thing in her favour is that they know that she can, on her day, make a big, quick score against the very best attacks in the world, which is not something you can say about every player in the England team. That they hope they all can, but they don't know it about all of them and you know you go back you don't know just go back to the two centuries you know she made a, a brilliant 89 in in you know mid 2021 to chase a title against India she made a 70 against Australia at the start of last year I think she, she's fine and Maya Boucher has you know much less off that behind she's actually played quite a lot for England I know she's had she's been a bit part player in the game she has played but, but that's she's kind of the point actually yeah 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 tell the same means uh, Silver Brunt is much trickier I think firstly She's not really an all-rounder anymore in the way that she used to be. There was a stage where she was you know, a very, very valuable T20 bat. She's not at that level anymore. She might still on a day whack a few, but that's not quite the case. She actually had a very good last year in T20Is, and you are kind of going based off two poor overs really against India because her first over was decent enough. And also, you look at the bats as well. It was Smriti Mandana and, and Risha Ghosh in the final over. Those are two 
like excellent batters and that can happen to a bowler. Um, but you can't hide a bowler in T20 cricket in the way that you can hide a underperforming batter in a way. I know that England have bowling debt, so she might have to bowl her full four. Mm. Um, but that, that is, you know, England have like seven frontline bowling options. Yeah, I guess because I guess you're looking at it's, it's Kate Cross that would come in and we know like with the new ball, Kate Cross, that she she might win you a game. So that that is a really, really close one. I think I would lean towards Siverbrunt just, but I think I'd also base it a lot on, you know, how they're tracking. The, they've got one more game where they, maybe they could even play both, give, give Bella Rest, who's kind of definite to play and see see how they get on. Um, but yeah, that is a really close one. I think actually the more interesting team composition selection to come out of this game is Risha Ghosh, uh, who's still batting at number five for India. Uh, this World Cup, she's got 122 or 36 balls without being dismissed. You could make a case that she is like right now one of the most informed batters in the world. I know she's only young, but looking at that lineup and actually you've got a couple of players above who do, who sometimes will have a, a bit of a stinker in, in Rodriguez and, and, and Core even. They both kind of, they can like to get set before going on and that can harm them. I think Gosh at three, maybe, I think is the, that could unlock this India side, I think. I'm I'm getting quite optimistic about England's chances. Obviously, Australia, obviously, favourites. But as we said before the tournament, if the pitches do get worse, which I think they will do, England have, have stuck to that formula of, of picking all three of Eccleston, um, Glenn and Dean, uh, all, all of whom are doing well. And also the, their batting depth is as good as I can remember ever being, really. So in that in that India game, you've got, you got Charlie Dean at 10. So the, the batting depth is really there, which gives a bit more freedom to the players high up in the order. And I thought it was a really, really big game for, for Amy Jones as well. Amy Jones does not have a particularly good record against India and Australia. Or and a record in big games. Yeah. So her getting that, that kind of score that really, really mattered uh, yeah. completely changed the, the feeling of that game really yeah. after Siver Brunt and Knight got England back into and it. She, she's, she's, start. She, sorry, she, she's quite a different character. Uh, very modest, not a naturally upfront kind of character at all so to have made those runs in a big game uh, and to have really got them to a target that they could probably defend uh, will, could potentially be be crucial for the, the makeup of that side because if you have three, four, five, six now with Capsie obviously Siverbrunt N uh, the skipper at five and then her at six Amy Jones who who fancies completing an innings then then you can take it anywhere for sure uh, Eccleston, what was it? Four overs, one for 13 or 14, something like that. Basically unplayable in T20 cricket. Uh, as good as it gets, good as it's ever been, uh, bowling slow in T20 cricket. And so you're right, on, on crabbier and older pitches, it's a very, very good rock-solid theory. Uh, and they will avoid the big, the big, the big ones in the semi-final. So if they can just hold their nerve against South Africa, uh, against, uh, so, yeah, against South Africa, probably, then... You never know. Yeah, I mean, on on two of the big ones, they are they are looking quite good. Yeah, but that's and a given, on the on the uh, on the point that England have three good spin options, so do Australia. Hmm. Um, they've got Gardner, Alana King, and George Wareham, who's been out for ages with injury. She's come straight back in and has done really well. Um, they they are they are pretty much using seven bowlers in every game. So if someone's got an off day, they've got a world class option to bowl uh, to fill fill the remaining overs. So I'm, I'm really glad South Africa. Are, uh, going to be featuring in that semi-final because as you say they lost that first game against Sri Lanka and with all the controversy building into the tournament uh, but with a rejuvenated public as you saw during the T20 men's tournament and it's definitely flowed into this which has been a really well covered well well supported tournament it would have been a great shame if the host hadn't made the last four 
So as it stands, we've got the, the semis that you'd have hoped for at the start. Yeah, they're not 100% there, there no, yeah, but, but yeah, they, they should do it. And, and, and just something on, on New Zealand, because the, the, the reason why Safka are in pole position to qualify is they absolutely smashed New Zealand who bowled out for 100, under 100 for the second game in a row. Um, and we talked about Chloe Tryon a little bit before the tournament started, but um, she scored a really important 40 there when it looked like Safka weren't going to make many and then she took took a two for as well so she's been a really important player and then um Laba, i think she's number two in the world at the moment she took a three for in that game as well and she's i think only 22 and she's done really well and quite a big part of why safka are possibly doing slightly better than people predicted them to do at the start of the tournament and also new zealand just just do this they they like you know they, they look quite good in the build up they've got lots of good players and they have not really threatened the business end of a, of a global tournament for quite a long time now and it's something they just can't seem to kick that. That performance from Safka was was brilliant in that game. Yeah, that was uh, maybe the, the, the team performance of the tournament. The, uh, the the other thing about this tournament, it's been a, a strange one in a way because it's been very enjoyable. There have been lots of very good games and yet very few upsets <laughs> since that since that first one. I mean, Ireland pushed West Indies very close. We're really unlucky not to win it. Uh, Pakistan pushed West Indies very close and also pushed India very close, uh, but couldn't, couldn't get over the line neither of those. And so now you have, I mean, I think we said before the tournament, not hard to predict that be England, India, Australia and one of South Africa and New Zealand and it's apart from after that very first game never really looked like being anything but that and yet the gap is not that big between you know those five sides and the rest as has been seen in in some of the games. I think Pakistan have had a few injuries um so we talked about Aisha Nassim looking really good at she's only 18 um got aggressive middle of the batter so she wasn't in the side that played West Indies and West and Pakistan failed to chase 117 only by by four runs, or you think that if she's playing that game, that might be slightly different. And five wickets um, down as well, so it is it's proper. Do they have the impact player there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, that is all time we have for today's show. Um, cheers, Phil. Cheers, Ben. We'll be back for an extra special episode on Wednesday, where we will be playing um, the interview that Butch did with Rob Key a couple of weeks ago. It is brilliant. Uh, highly recommend it. Key covers basically everything you'd want to hear from Key over the last year in English cricket. He explains all the big decisions that he made, the the role that Strauss played. We talked about Strauss a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's absolutely brilliant. It's about a 45 minute chat. Um, you get a lot from Key that I don't think you'd probably get from another interviewer just because of the relationship Butch and Key obviously have. So yeah, that'll be hitting your feeds in two days' time. Podcast Network.